Hi, Door of Hope. I'm Katie Schultz, and I'm going to be reading the scripture for you this morning, which is Mark 1, 2 through 8. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that uh, as we prepare to hear your message from Josh, that you would just um, silence all the distractions and the voice of the enemy and just allow us to to hear your word, to hear from you, Jesus. Um, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that you would um, show us uh, or give us a deeper understanding of who you are and of your love and that we would just uh, be filled with your goodness and your grace um, as we prepare for a new week. And we love you and we ask this in the power of your name. Amen. Hey, good morning, Door of Hope Northeast. Welcome back for another Bible study. For those of you who may be tuning in for the first time, welcome. If you don't recognize me, my name is Josh. I am one of the pastors here, and we are continuing a study in the book of Mark. Today, actually, when this video is being released is February 14th, which is Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day to you. Thought I'd mention it. But that is an aside. We really want to talk about Mark and what Mark has to say to us. And last week, Cameron introduced the whole book, and I thought that was just a really excellent sermon, not only because it, it gave the content of sort of a dry lecture in a way that was a lot more engaging, but also Cameron didn't just give all the background to Mark and kind of what's, what he's about, but showed that Mark is really about Jesus and, and called us as a community to come together around Jesus to, to observe, to look into, to look deeply into this Jesus who's presented to us in Mark. So if you have not heard that sermon, I encourage you to listen to it. I will be selling copies. No, I'm just kidding. Cameron will be selling copies. No, uh, go, go to the website, go to the uh, YouTube channel or however it is you get a hold of our free content and and give it a listen. I really encourage you to do that. But we're I'm continuing Mark. I'll be doing verses 2 through 8, which hopefully you've heard read. And if you haven't, you could go ahead and pause this and read it. Uh, but I would like to open us up with bringing to mind a word that probably you're sick of hearing. I think it's it's kind of at this point, it's kind of like remember in 99 1999, when Livin' La Vida Loca was on the radio, and at first you were kind of like, oh yeah, this song's kind of groovy, but you didn't want to admit it, right? And then after about the 12th time in the same day you heard it, you, you were kind of not feeling it anymore. 
And then by three days later, you were ready to just chuck the radio out the window because they were still playing it 12 times a day and you just, you just wanted to die. So you probably know, if you think about the word that I may be talking about, you're probably thinking of it right now. Yes, the word is unprecedented. Anybody tired of hearing that word? Awesome, you can put your hands down because I can't see them and you're just sitting there wherever you are with your hand in the air. But I'm sick of hearing it and probably we all are, so I thought it would be a good idea for us to think about it. Uh, it all joking aside though, I, me as a, uh, the, I am embracing my inner weirdo, so, as a weirdo, what I did was I took this word and I looked it up on the thing called the Google Ngram. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with this thing, it's basically it tracks word usage in published materials. And so I looked this thing up, and I'll put an image of it up here on the video for you to see. So I look it up, and it's just fascinating. If if you're you look at the the image, well, if if you're listening to this on audio, you can't see the image. So I guess you'll have to look it up, or you're gonna have to come back and watch the video. But if if you have it up by this point, you'll see that there's a down in 1800. It's pretty low. It slowly kind of makes its way up, and then there are these two spikes in there. And the peak of those two spikes are in 1918 and 1944. I don't know if you can see the date there. So what was going on then? Obviously 1918, if you're familiar with your history, that's World War I, and 1944 is World War II. So it totally makes sense that these, uh, these spikes come in there and start using the word a lot because were, the world was in turmoil at that point. But what happens is these are genuine peaks, right? Each one after those, those days, it drops back down, not quite to where it was before, but still drops down quite a bit, enough to where you can see that it's an actual spike. And then something really curious happens, right? Right about 1980, it starts to crawl back up, and then it just, it just plateaus. It stays up there, and it's stayed up there relatively unchanged for the last 40 years. Uh, there's a little bit of a divergence at the end, but either way, it never, it never goes back down. So, so why is this? Well, back in 1980, I hadn't been born yet in 1980, so some of you remember and probably a lot of you don't, but the economy went, went down and unemployment went up. So that's a cause for anxiety and, um, and people would use the word a lot probably. Then uh, the economy goes up and so does crime. So that's, that's worthy of, of talking. And then something fascinating happens in the 90s, actually. Uh, crime goes down, but the reporting of crime goes up. So for example, I looked up this statistic. Homicide went down over 40% in the 90s, and news reports about homicide went up by over 700%. What that tells you is that they, they learned that they got really, really good ratings in the 80s by reporting on crime and things that bring out fear and anxiety in people. And so they just decided that they were going to shove a bunch of their reporting that direction so that people would continue in anxiety and then they could sell their advertising space for, for more money. It's all about the bottom dollar, right? 
So, uh, so these things are, ha are happening in the 80s and the 90s, and then of course there's 9-11 in 2001. We have a string of, of mass shootings that continue to go on. There's the economic crash in 08, and of course all of this is being reported and, and comes at us constantly to bring anxiety our way. Then of course, uh, something I haven't mentioned but was going, all th uh, going on all throughout this is what's been known as the digital revolution. Everything is changing over from analog to digital. And this means that for some of us, our jobs may be going to, <laughs> to the machines. It means that people are now having unlimited access to information or misinformation through the internet. Uh, unlimited access to things that are harmful to society, like pornography. Um, and, and on top of that, you have the, um, the game of having to keep up with the latest device that you're constantly having to update, and they create them so that they will be obsolete in a few years, so you're scrambling to keep up with the latest gadget, or you're scrambling to keep up with your social media accounts, or you're scrambling to keep up with the latest news cycle that, of course, is over-reporting things that don't happen very often, once again. So, so there's reason why this stays up, but I think, my opinion, about one of the biggest reasons why this has stayed up is if you remember in the late 90s and early 2000s, we had a string of horrible music from Creed to Nickelback to Puddle of Mud to all of the Christian knockoffs of these bands and their success their, and their ongoing popularity is truly unprecedented. I think that 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 makes the, it worthy of speaking that word. But anyway, that's just, that's just my opinion. And I don't, <laughs> by the way, 2020 isn't on the chart yet. So who knows what, what that's gonna be. I, I'm, you can make your own prediction. But I'm saying all this not to, not to just get a laugh, though I hope it does. I don't know, maybe you like Creed, so I'm sorry, I, I just made a joke at your expense. But I'm saying all this to say that we use the word unprecedented an unprecedented amount. And we do because we are able to get surprised by what happens. But I'm using this as a foil to contrast it to how God is. See, nothing is unprecedented to God. Nothing catches him by surprise. He sees the end from the beginning and time itself and we, along with time, we have to catch up with what God is already doing. He's not reacting to what's happening like we are. So I'm going to say that, actually, I wrote this down, so it'll probably sound better. Okay, nothing is unprecedented for God. He sees the end from the beginning. He is always working ahead of us, and time itself has to catch up with him and we along with it. So that's the, the main thread that I'm going to try and weave through this entire sermon. So go ahead and write that down. If somebody asks, what was the sermon about? There, there it is <laughs> in one sentence. So this is good news, though, right? That nothing is unprecedented for God. That he's, he's working ahead of us, that we're having to catch up with him, that he's not reacting to what's happening in our world. That's good news for us, especially when we're in times that are relatively troubled like ours are. And by the way, our what we're experiencing is no more troubled than the world that Jesus and his apostles uh, lived through. So, for example, um, we have, unfortunately, 
rare but, but far too many occurrences of law enforcement officials abusing their power. And that is a tragedy and it's unfortunate and we need to do everything we can to stop it. But in Jesus' day, a Roman soldier, if you lived in Jerusalem, a Roman soldier could stop you for any reason and ask you for anything, and you could either give him that or you could forfeit your life. So it would be similar to today where any law enforcement officer could pull you over and for any reason and make up some sort of fine and say, you have to pay. And if you don't have the cash, He could say, that's a nice watch, I'll take that. That's a nice phone or iPad or gadget or whatever, I'll take that. He could take payment out of your body. Hey, you got a nice body, you could pay me that way. He could could impound your car. That's, That's a lot worse than the world that we live in. And I don't say that to minimize the pain of those who've been victimized by, by law enforcement abuse. I'm saying that just to say that God Um, that that the apostles and Jesus lived through a world in which they had to believe that God was working ahead of them, that God was sovereign, that God was in control in a world that was even more chaotic and violent than ours is. So this is nothing new to God, even though it feels new to us. So anyway, all that said, Mark includes this account of John the Baptist to say essentially, essentially that, that God is in control, that this is an ongoing plan that God has had. John is connecting the ministry and life of Jesus and his work to the work of God in the Old Testament. He's saying it's the same thing, it's just that time is now catching up. The appearance of John is the work of God in the Old Testament now catching up to his present moment. That's what it's about. So we, we hear about John, he, you, you know, you may have read the story a thousand times. John appears, he, he is wearing wild clothing, <laughs> and people are showing up, he's baptizing them, they are confessing their sins, and he is, he is telling them that the Christ is, is coming their way. And we might nod our heads in our pious approval as though we know what's going on, and we know a little bit. But as 21st century Westerners, we actually don't know a whole lot. So I wanted to take us back into the Old Testament to get us some context for just what John's appearing would look like for, for the Jews, and that would help us actually connect the dots to what Mark is doing here. So I want to spend the bulk of our time in the Old Testament. So get those, get those um, page-turning fingers or or scrolling fingers warmed up because we're going to be all over the place. And we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 40. I have a bookmark here, so it's easy for me to get there, but it may take you a little bit of time, and that's okay. Using a table of contents is okay. No shame there. Or the scrolling, or the search bar, I guess, if that's what you do. But before I actually read in Isaiah, just a little bit of background, very, very briefly. So God had called Abraham out of a pagan world and said, I am going to use your family to bless all the families of the earth. And through various circumstances, Abraham's people end up in Egypt. God delivers them out of Egypt and makes a covenant with them at Sinai, and they immediately break that covenant. They are immediately unfaithful to him, but God had already set forth, God had already worked ahead of them 
a plan for how to rectify their wrongs. And so as they are being unfaithful, God sends them prophets, prophet after prophet, to call them back to him, to call them back to faithfulness to him so that they would not have to face judgment. And he not only gives these prophets a a message to declare to the people, he also has them do these wild and crazy things to sort of embody the message that that they're giving. So if you never read the prophets, you really should because some of these things are just hilarious. So for example, Isaiah, one of the things God tells Isaiah to do, he says, take your clothes off, take your sandals off and go around naked for three years. Can you imagine that? Now the point of, the point of him doing that is because this is how the people will be in however much time people are going to be led off into exile with their buttocks showing is, is actually what it says. <laughs> so, so Isaiah is having to enact this message of like, hey, your exile is coming if you don't turn. And uh, Jeremiah, another funny one, I don't know why both of these have to do with the same sort of thing, but, but Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah, hey, go buy yourself a pair of underwear, and then a year later he says, okay, take that pair of underwear, go down to the river and bury it in the rocks. And then a year after that, he says, go back to those rocks and, and unearth the, those, that pair of undies. And Jeremiah does it, and he says, oh, Lord, they're soiled. I can't, I can't wear these anymore. They're all soiled and rotten. And God says, yes, that's right. That's my people. They're all soiled and rotten and unusable. So these are just a few of the stories. There are many more of, of the crazy and wild things that prophets do. But God sends, so God sends uh, the, his people prophets who warn them. And very often they are warning ahead of time, but they often speak about things that are much further in the future that God's already working on. And this is one of them. So Isaiah chapter 40, hopefully you're there by now. But uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 1, I'll read it. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah is speaking comfort to God's people because their time of punishment has ended, meaning the time of their exile has ended. Why this is significant is because Isaiah lived hundreds of years before this exile even happened. So God was at work, he had a plan, he was doing something before the events took place. Time and the people of that generation, they had to catch up with the work that God was already doing. And the second half there, about the voice crying in the wilderness, you'll recognize that from Mark chapter 1, verse 2. Mark actually quotes this, the one crying out in the wilderness, but he only quotes part of it. He means the whole thing. So the voice crying in the wilderness is essentially saying, God is coming, the glory of God is going to be revealed, so make way, let the mountains be brought low, the valleys brought up, the crooked ways straight in the the level plain. Essentially, God himself is coming, so get ready, make way. And you can see the connection with John there. That's essentially John's message is, look, 
He's coming. And he points to Jesus when he says, there it is, the glory of the Lord has arrived. And what's another thing to point out here is, recall in verse 5, he says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is no mere uh, wishy-washy, flaky human prediction here. This is God himself saying this. And just in case you have any doubt, he goes on, I'll read it in verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows over it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Okay, so, so this is sure to happen. It's God himself at work here, not just a human prediction, not just, oh, this might happen. This is God himself. So this is Isaiah. This is hundreds of years before they go into exile. Now flip over to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36 for, um, to be specific. Now Ezekiel is speaking while they're in exile. So there were multiple deportations of, of God's people out of, um, out of Jerusalem. Excuse me. And Ezekiel was in one of the first ones. He was part of the priesthood, and he is deported. So he is speaking from Babylon to the exiles in Babylon. And specifically in verse 22, he says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my holiness, or vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So here we have again this prediction before they return from exile that they will be returning. God is working ahead of them. Time is going to catch up. Then uh, in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Okay, do you, are you starting to see the connection between John the Baptist here? I will sprinkle your heart, sprinkling, water, baptism, cleansing of sins. They're confessing their sins. I will cleanse you. So he's talking about a baptism, but it's a baptism that God himself will do, and it's one in which the Spirit of God will be involved. Remember John's message? The one coming after me, I'm baptizing you with physical water, which is symbolic for the forgiveness of sins, but after me is coming one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He has Ezekiel 36 here in mind in his message. So that's another connection. One more, and, and we'll be through. So this is in Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Now, Malachi is a prophet who's speaking after they have returned from exile. 
So just in case people thought that these prophecies in Isaiah and Ezekiel had simply to do with the return of exile, Micah takes it a step further, or not Micah, Malachi, sorry. So in Malachi chapter three, verse one, I will read it. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Notice, by the way, uh, that Mark snuck this in here. He says that the Isaiah the prophet says this, but he actually, the first half of it is this verse right here from Malachi. Just sneaks it in there. Um, but the messenger is going to come before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold, uh, like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Skip down to chapter four, verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So notice here that last part about Elijah. Elijah's coming, there's a prophet who's coming. And this is someone who's coming after Malachi, right? So God's at work and time is gonna catch up. Elijah's gonna come back. Notice what Mark had said about about John the Baptist, about his, his attire. Mark is, is no, you know, Mugatu of, of the first century just making uh, fashion comments about John. Elijah was someone who wore camel's hair, a leather belt, ate bugs and honey in the wilderness. So John is presenting himself as this Elijah who was to come. And the Elijah, the messenger who would, who would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord, well, he comes when judgment comes. So when people see John, they see this person who's, who's embodying the, the ministry and the prophet of Elijah, and he has this message that judgment is coming, that the Lord is prepare the way, the Lord himself is coming. They know we need to confess our sins. We need to be clean. We don't wanna be on the wrong side of history. You know, we don't wanna be on the wrong side of God's judgment. So that's why they're showing up in droves and they're being baptized by him is because they're actually making these connections. They're actually seeing, they're remembering God was at work in the past. He promised that he'd be doing these things. We're actually catching up to what God is doing. So that's, that's the connection uh, in, with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist actually points to Jesus, right? His, his me, in his message, he's pointing to Jesus and the judgment of God actually is coming. But it's not like any of us thought. The judgment that came with Jesus was a judgment in which he would actually take our judgment. He came and he lived the righteous life we should have lived, we always should have lived. And he presented that righteous life to God and God vindicated him when he raised him from the dead. But he also came and judgment came through his cross. And so John was right, God was right. God's work ahead of time, God's prediction ahead of time of this was all correct. Judgment came, but it fell on God himself, and that was his plan. We could not stand in his judgment, so he had to come. 
So even though Israel was rebellious from day one, and we have been rebellious from day one, God had made a covenant with them. He had made a plan that in the fullness of time would come to fruition, and he's made a plan for us and for our life too. The difficulty though for us, I think, is how do we see that God is at work? You know, in, in, in their time, uh, they had Isaiah, the writings of Isaiah and Ezekiel saying, hey, this is going to happen. We don't really have that, except unless you want to count the, the end times, which really just says, hang on, it'll all be over, it'll all be over, and he's going to appear and show up. And who knows, if you do a, a run of the statistics of numbers, only one generation gets to be the last one. So that's one generation out of however many there ever will be. So the statistics aren't likely, but you know, we, somebody's gotta be that last generation. Maybe we are them, I don't know. But how do we look for the work of God? How do we see it right now in our lives? Um, well, it can be, that can be difficult. We always call things unprecedented. We get distracted by you know, the things that I mentioned at the beginning that, that make us use this word all the time. I know, I, I know, I, I have an iPad that's only six years old. I don't think it's a dinosaur, but for some reason it can't connect to the Wi-Fi in this building, but it can connect to Shelly Boob's 2020 up the street. I don't get it, and it's irritating. <laughs> but, but be that as it may, uh, we can look for the work of God. We can actually see it if we look for it. Okay, story time. This, this hopefully will help illustrate how we can do this. When I went to seminary, I went to seminary in another city, and in that, in that town, I tried a whole, a whole slew of churches. They had at least one that was sort of evangelical in our vein, and, but I wanted to have a different experience. I wanted to, to see what Christians and other traditions had to say, how they worshiped, and hopefully bring something back to us from outside the box. So I tried a bunch of other churches. Some went, they ranged everywhere from being fraught with heresy to being fraught with pretension. But the one I landed at, one of the reasons I landed there was because of how they prayed. And the first time there, I'll never forget it, a man stood up and he prayed, and I'm going to paraphrase because I didn't record it. But he said something like this. He said, God, I thank you. I thank you that many years ago you created a man, you made him born here on earth, and you gave that man a good family, and you gave him a good education growing up, and, and you sent him to medical school, and he became a doctor, and you sent him patients, so he became a really good doctor. He became a really good surgeon, and you guided his hand to help so many people, and Lord, you sent me to that doctor, and you guided his hand so that he could he could work on my back and he could heal my back and I'm here today standing, Lord, and it's all because of you. I'm standing, I can stand here today, Lord, because you, you worked it all together to heal my back and I thank you and I praise you, Jesus. So that was the essence of his prayer. And I don't know if I was able to bring it out, but, but uh, this, was a, this guy was not white. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, but he... He saw, he understood that, that God was not involved in just like, oh, thank you for science. Thank you for modern medicine. No, God was meticulously involved in his personal life before he, before he even got to the moment where he needed the back surgery. He, he saw that God was at work setting things up, putting things in place that he could benefit in that moment. 
Now, we can do this too. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to look at things. We can do this too, and uh, here's, here's the way I was thinking about it. Next time you go to have a meal, just take a minute. When, when I sit down to a meal, I can either say, you know, thank you, Jesus, for this food, amen, or I could actually think about where it comes from. So try this out. I had oatmeal today, so let's just take that. Let's look at the oats. I could sit there and I could say, Lord, where did these oats come from? Well, somebody had, had to have a plot of land, and that land had to have nitrogen and other elements in the soil in order for anything to grow in it. So that's just a gift of God right there. And then this man or woman, whoever it is, they had to actually work and till the soil. So they had to be energized by God to do that. Or God had to have given someone the inspiration and insight to invent a machine to do that. And then other people had to mine ore out of the earth and machine and make parts so that the machine could work to do it, right? Then somebody had to spend the energy that God gave them to water, to fertilize, and then of course the sun, which no one can control, only God gives us that, had to be shining down and, and feeding you know, the plants through photosynthesis and all that. And then of course, once the plants came to maturity, they had to be harvested, the oats of course had to be rolled, packaged, shipped, put on the shelf for me to, for me to enjoy. And of course, I did not mention anything like uh, roads had to be invented and everything has to be mined out of the earth to make roads and cars and everything else. So if I look at my contribution to this whole thing, to getting my food, it's actually quite pathetic. All I did was go to a store and bring it back and it takes me, what, an, an hour to do all of this? God was at work ahead of time bringing all these elements and pieces and inventions all together so that I could have a meal right now. And by the way, I, that was just one ingredient. Usually what we eat has, has a lot of ingredients. So there are so many working pieces that go into us having just simply one meal. We could stop and think about that and thank God and see how he is at work ahead of us. By the time I eat, I'm catching up to what he started long before. So God is meticulously involved. He's meticulously involved in our lives. He's working ahead of us. And he's not just working ahead of us when we have a meal or various other events. He was working ahead of us when Jesus came. He knew that we needed to be clean. We needed to be baptized by his spirit. We needed his spirit inside of us. So before we were even born, he came, he was at work, he made a way for us to be reconciled to him. When Jesus was on the cross, he knew that you and I would not be born for 1900 some odd years, and yet he had a plan and he was doing that work for us. He knew that later on we would catch up to him, and we have, and we would actually be able to see his work and benefit from it. So he was at work then. He's at work in 2020. He'll be at work in 2021. He'll bring us through just like he brought us through the era of creed and all their knockoffs. So we know that God, that God can do it for us, whatever 2021 is going to hit us with. So I hope that the Spirit has spoken to you in this, uh, that you are blessed. Let's turn to Him, worship Him, love Him, adore Him, give ourselves to Him, 
I pray that you are blessed. I can't wait to see you guys. I can't wait to stop talking to my phone to you and actually talk to your faces. Maybe I won't see them smiling because we'll still be wearing masks, but I'll still get to see at least half of your faces. But either way, Lord bless you. I'll see you again next time.